Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. To Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we're joined by a returning guest, Dr. Kaz Ross. Thanks for joining us, Kaz. Yeah, lovely to be here again. Well, Kaz, it wouldn't be a Kaz Ross appearance on Yenar Pastoran if I didn't ask you what's going on with Steve Bannon. I'm curious as to how he's responded to the war on Gaza. Yes, well, for those who don't know, Steve Bannon is my special mastermind topic, and I'm quite obsessed with Steve Bannon as the cause of many of our ills. So Steve Bannon's been very busy. A lot's been going on in Steve Bannon's world, in particular the various problems with domestic politics in America that's been playing up pretty large in his world. Trump's indictments have been playing up pretty large and, of course, the situation with Gaza. So for Steve Bannon, there's a whole lot to be said about Gaza. First of all, he's an extremely strong supporter of Israel. His overall political view is that Russia and the Chinese Communist Party are trying to create a multipolar world and that Israel is very strong part of their strategy to undermine the power of the US. And so, therefore, he is using the Gaza situation to have a go at some of his targets, for example, Biden. He's saying that Biden's weakened Israel and weakened America by giving money to Iran and that we can never take our eyes off the big picture, which is that The Persians have hated the West for hundreds of years and they are the enemy. And so therefore the CCP, the Chinese CCP and the Persians are laying a trap in Gaza. And uh, Biden giving billions of dollars to Iran is causing this disaster and the only person speaking out against it is President Trump. Those sneaky Persians. Yep. He he does recommend seeing that movie, The 300 or whatever it is. His followers should watch that. But um, he's also pointing out that this is the problem of the woke, you see. So at the moment he's quoting some stats. I haven't verified them, but the stats that he's quoting are that over 80% of boomers in America support Israel, but under 30% of younger people. And he's saying that's because they're all woke, their brains have been rotted by woke Marxist brainworms, and that the young people are seeing Palestine as their South Africa. So they've been sucked in by the propagandization of victimization 
and this is undermining the support for Israel. So it's wokeness on the American side and it's wokeness on the Israeli side. Apparently the Israeli military are very woke, according to Bannon and his pals, and that's weakened them and uh, this is a big problem. So wokeness, TikTok dancing videos on both sides are causing a big problem. Has he said anything about Netanyahu in particular? Oh, he's a supporter. He's a supporter. He basically, he's been a strong supporter of of Israel. He's a strong supporter of Israel's territories. And when his, when his, and the settler policies, when the, his guests come on and say Gaza has to be flattened, he does not speak against that. So I haven't, I mean, Steve Bannon is on every day for hours. So I must confess i haven't been listening to him for a few hours every single day you have been naomi climbing it no i haven't i have to admit a few other things to do nazis and the voice and things like that have taken a bit of my time but he has yet to when i've heard people saying we need to flatten gaza i've not heard him say anything against it and a few of his guests have said look war's nasty people die and look what we did in the Pacific. We poured petrol down tunnels and set them on fire and flattened places and bombed the crap out of various places because that's what you've got to do. So the other thing he's using for the Gaza thing is, of course, to attack American domestic politics. And he's following up on a theme he's had since war broke out in Ukraine and saying that it's really not acceptable that the president has not been to the House and explained what the plan is. And he said, look, we, we're sleepwalking into this. We're being dragged into this thing. We have to commit to Israel. We should be putting up our plan, big, bold plan, and supporting it from the start, not just in little increments, and it's not going through the proper processes. So he's using that to attack Biden. And, of course, he, of course, calls Trump uh, president. He says President Trump is the only one that could save them. He's The other thing he's been doing is talking about this invasion of America from the southern border. Uh, I don't know if you two have seen it, but there's quite a lot of consternation about the numbers of so-called military-age men, single men, coming across the southern border from Mexico. And basically Bannon's been talking about that as Hezbollah's already here and they're coming across the southern border. So, Is what, there some kind of coalition between Hezbollah and MS-13 or something going on? Yeah, who who really knows? I mean, when you look at those people coming across the border, well, I don't know. I mean, do they really look like Hezbollah? But they've, they've, the, the far-right Republicans have been very, very obsessed with the number of young single men coming across that border. And so Bannon says, look, what's happening, what happened to Israel on October 7 will happen to us and Hezbollah are already here. Mm. So it's the immigration panic, it's the money panic, it's the Trump's still the President Biden's hopeless. And, of course, he's described the situation in Gaza as the latest thing. First it was COVID, then it was Ukraine, now it's Gaza. It's all distracting from, I don't know, Hunter Biden's drug taking or something. So another distraction. But it's one that he believes the US must be completely committed to. So Bannon supports Israel and its war. 
But did you also say, Kaz, something about him conceiving of the situation as being a potential trap for Israel yes, in the West? Right. That's right. So he he thinks that the problem is that the US is getting wedged and that that the support it's that whole thing about oh you can't kill civilians and it but basically for Israel to prevail it has to do that it has to kill civilians on in large numbers and he's saying that the US is being wedged because he one of his guests claimed that after Biden was there the other day and he keeps saying that Biden is the commander in chief. He's there in Israel, and after his visit, they turned the water on to Gaza, and this is a sign of of weakness, and that the US is being wedged to be weak on Israel than they than they should be. So, said so it is a trap, and basically, the bigger game is not Palestine and Lebanon. The bigger the bigger game is Persia, generally, and as we've known from Bannon's history, one of his strong elements right from the beginning when he was running Breitbart was this sort of anti-Islam line. So he's he's strong on that, on the anti-Islam line. He's strong on the anti-CCP line. But it is all about this multipolarity, which he sees as, as a big danger for US power. Um, for your sins, you've been watching a lot of content from the far right. How are people besides Bannon responding to the war on Gaza? Yeah, well, this is really interesting because you see, of course, if you look at Australia's neo-Nazi movement, they just generally delight in non-white people blowing up non-white people. So there's a bit of that going on, celebration. And, of course, they are very anti-Semitic. So they're delighted with with this sort of this movement, these big mass demonstrations about what's happening in Palestine and the impact on Palestinian people. So from my reading of it is that they think it's all good and they don't need to do anything at all because it's all just chugging along very nicely, doesn't actually need a Nazi hand in there pushing it in any direction because it's it's all just a bit of a, a cluster you-know-what. And so I think that basically they've had a few wins lately. I think it was a win that after the voice referendum vote that the Prime Minister read out a Nazi anti-Semitic meme in Parliament. That was a big win for them. And their whole thing is, the whole latest thing is expose Jewish power. So as far as they can see, they're just turning everything to prove that point. And they will run the line that some in America have run as well, which is why are we spending so much money in somewhere like supporting Israel when we've got homeless people and look at the housing and what are we doing about immigration? So I think that it's for Nazis, it's a big buffet at the moment of hot button issues that they can turn to their favourite thing, which is hating on Jews, stopping immigration and hating on brown people generally. Kaz, in Victoria, we've just witnessed a law passed to criminalise the public display of the Nazi salute. What do you make of that law and what do you think its effects will be? Well, first of all, living in Tasmania, I have to say that Tasmania had a much more comprehensive and better thought out law on the books much earlier than Victoria. Well, competition. Well, it is a competition because, I mean, we don't even have that much of a Nazi problem down here, but we were onto it much more than Victoria, which just rushed into banning Swazis and didn't think about 
the other symbols or didn't think about the Roman salute or something like that. So it was a bit hasty on the Victorian part, I think, but they have rectified it now. Look, in general, I mean, I think the best form of defence against fascism and Nazism is community support and community defence. But I think that it is important to stop them, to stop Nazis feeling like they can just claim public space and do whatever the hell they like on public transport, on the steps of parliament, in the streets. And we've seen them move from really being a secret presence or a sort of a hidden underground presence in Melbourne to feeling like they can just flirt with drunken women on the train on a Friday night recruit people off the streets and march around the city of Melbourne with a nod and a wink from the police. So I do think it's important that we reclaim uh, public space for community safety and I'm hoping that the law will go some way towards that. As to whether or not they're that bothered by it, well, they don't use the swastika that much directly. I mean, their symbols clearly... Nazi symbols and they use with a Nazi intent. So in actual fact, they probably could be charged, but I'm not sure that that's going to happen. So they don't really overtly use the swastika that much, although their leader has described it as a sacred symbol to them and part of their religion. They've also said that they're going to take an anti-discrimination case and say that they're being discriminated on the ga- on the basis of their religion. I don't see how they're going to win that. I mean, they can say, yes, yes, these symbols have been around for a long time before the 20th century, they're ancient symbols, but I can't see how they're going to win the argument that it's their religion and it's a religion that's recognised that they're practising. So I don't think that will work. As we know, and particularly I see Andy, you constantly reminding us, they have raised money, which they could use actually for this kind of legal case, but their leader said they don't want to waste money on lawyers. So I think they've got no hope of challenging the swastika ban. As for the Roman salute, this is a bit more painful to them because it is a shocking gesture they like to do. They, they think the ban will mean that all edgy teens will start Roman saluting here, there and everywhere. I think most people think that Nazis are dickheads and they're unlikely to start taking up Roman saluting as a hobby. But Saul says that their leader says that they, they're recruiting well, they're recruit, recruiting well from the freedom movement and that the fight about symbols is not yet over. So I don't know. What do you two think about the ban? Is it going to work? I think you're right, Kaz, to suggest that it's much beloved. So, and, you know... The public assemblies are generally very public and also often police. So any gesture of that kind, I suppose, would render them liable to arrest and that would be annoying. I mean, I I agree. I don't think the kids are going to take up the cause somehow. So I, I think it's just a nuisance more than anything, one to which they'll have to adapt. I, I guess the real concern is, or my real concern, I suppose, is, you know, are they recruiting? Are they expanding? Are they drawing young people in from quarters they hadn't previously? I don't know what effect the ban will have. And as you said, there are plenty of alternatives to the swastika. So I, I think it's. I, I think the other thing is that in terms of the policing, I mean, I don't quite know, but it seems like when they've appeared in 
public in Melbourne generally masked, it would seem relatively straightforward for police to direct them to leave or to remove their masks. I'm not sure if that requires a, a declaration of a designated zone or not, but presumably if police are following their activities and, and care to police them, they'll be able to do so. But I, I, I guess the other question that I had was, apart from potential effects of these laws, which I think will be minor, and I think this is because it cropped up in a, another conversation I had previously which is to do with why Melbourne has become a centre, seemingly, for these sorts of activities in Australia, and if you had an opinion about that. Yeah, look, that's one that I've been thinking about as well. I'm blaming the weather, really. Maybe the weather, maybe the the way that people in Melbourne love to wear black. <laughs> um, I know, for, as a Melbourne... It's dangerous territory. Look, as a Melbourne person myself, but I have been revisiting in my mind what the Nazi scene was like back in the 1980s and the early 1990s and when they were, as you probably remember yourself, Andy probably Cam wasn't born then, but, but back in the back in the day, they, they used to just, you know, get off the train and bash you if you're at the train station and then just bash someone else and just get back on the train. There was a lot of random bashings that went on in those days. And yep. for anybody that hasn't caught up with the excellent series, Unravel series called Firebomb, it was about the firebombing of, of Chinese restaurants by Nazis in, in Perth, Western Australia. Things were pretty loose back then. I don't see it being that loose now, which is good. But I don't know, Melbourne's always been political. Think of the trade union movement, being in the feminist movement. It's always been a political place. It, I am sad that it's one of the things that we're known for, Melbourne's known for now, is it's it's Nazi scene. That's that's quite tragic. But it's also known for its anarchist scene. So so there's there's good good sides of being a political place. I don't know. Cam, what do you think? Melbourne, why? Why Melbourne? Well, I think part of it is because a lot of these groups that we're seeing at the moment have come out of those groups that we saw in the mid 2000s, uh, not the mid 2000s, in the in the mid 20s, whatever we call ten years ago. Yeah, <laughs> that, that were protesting against mosques, and a lot of those mosques were being built around Victoria, and not so much in other places. And so I think you see that Reclaim Australia mob pop up in the 20s. And we've seen the way that those groups evolved into the, the current milieu. And I think it's sort of just an accident of what they were protesting against, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Melbourne was also the centre, I'm thinking back in the day, was the was one of the hotspots of the whole anti, anti-Asian immigration push and the whole Australia's full Asians out. That was a big thing in Melbourne in the 19 late 1980s and the early 1990s. So I guess there's always been that sort of tension. You could even probably take it right back to the goldfields in the 1860s and see the important role that Melbourne played then in the lead up to Federation and the bringing in of the White Australia policy. So history there. I might just say in defence of Melbourne, perhaps it's just that Melbourne has like some of the nation's more stupid Nazis who don't realise that you're supposed to do this stuff quietly. When You've got places like Adelaide where they're just, you know, silently plotting terror attacks and getting arrested for them but not going on about it. 
Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that's the problem when, you, when you've electrocuted yourself and had a conversation with Hitler in your bathroom, you do see yourself as a bit of a leader that should be out and telling people about it. So yeah. Yeah. important to note that that's something that Tom Saul has claimed. Yeah. Just on the on the, the uh, of that is don't do dodgy electrics yourself in your bathroom. No, you'll be speaking to Hitler. But yeah, get a, yeah. Get a licensed electrician. That's it. I was going to say just on the salute thing. I remember in the early two thousands having neo Nazis on the internet explain to me Nazi explained to me that a uh, a Roman salute is not the same as a Nazi salute, and so that's why it was okay that there was all these photos of them that's throwing cool. Romans. I feel like this is an important demarcation that our Nazis have sort of ceded to the government. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, maybe this is a line after they listen to this podcast, they might explore themselves. To, oh, is it something to do with the angle of the arm or the angle of the hand? Or Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, Subtle you. differences. Well, this is it. You see, this is where the anti-fascists prove themselves to be better Nazis than the Nazis because, I mean, you guys know that stuff, right? But I bet the current crop of Nazis don't know that yet until they hear this. Mm -hmm. They will. A dubious honour. The dubious honour, yeah. One of the uh, current crop was in court last week and was fined for distributing Nazi propaganda in Melbourne. He received a a fine for his poor behaviour, but the question was posed whether or not this would have any kind of deterrent effect and what is the purpose of, I suppose, issuing small fines to Nazis distribute Nazi propaganda. I guess with the change in the laws, stiffer penalties might apply. Yes, possibly. I mean, in that particular case, those stickers that that Nazi was distributing may not have been the most offensive stickers that we've seen Nazis distribute. But that person, that particular Nazi himself, has been responsible for some of the worst stickers that we've seen and the worst posters that we've seen in the past the homophobic ones or ones claim writing in Chinese and and telling Chinese students at university campuses to go home or it's not safe on campus and all that sort of stuff. So this particular, from what I could see, these particular group, these particular stickers he was putting up weren't super offensive compared to previous ones. Look, I'm a fan of a good sticker. I like good stickers myself. I do not call these good stickers and, and, this partic- that particular Nazi, look, that fine's not going to stop him. It's ridiculous. And because it was a summary offence, they had the police had to give him his stickers back anyway. So what's he going to do with 1,300 stickers? <laughs> He's going to stick them up. So I, I doubt, look, no amount of programs or deprogramming or attending compulsory education sessions is going to change that particular Nazi. So... I don't know. I don't, I don't think the fine will do anything. I mean, some of the other stickers we've seen recently, which people might be starting to get charged for sticking up, are particularly horrendous. I think they're hate speech and they that really the police need to take some serious charges against those particular Nazis, I think. Kaz, you mentioned the freedom movement earlier. I've been reliably informed that the pandemic is over, which might come as a little bit of a shock to a few people in hospital. What's the freedom movement or the cooker movement, if you prefer, doing now that COVID is done? Yeah, look, it's 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 a hard time for them. The the Canberra campouts have faded away. 
been camping in Canberra. They whittled down to one or two stalwarts. As far as I can see, the cooker movements in Melbourne anyway divided into two and they meet every week and they go for a bit of a walk around the city yelling at people through their megaphones. They then just jump on the latest thing. So if it's a save the children, anti-drag, whatever it is, they just jump on that, turn up, yell at a few people. And they were a bit shocked fairly recently when some anti-fascists turned up to uh, counter-protest. They were a bit upset about that. They think that the streets belong to them and nobody should be yelling back at them through megaphones. So they don't like it when people counter. But their numbers are pretty small. I think that they can still be mobilised as a form of boomer waffen and that we saw that through The Voice, what happened in The Voice, is they were very much mobilised there to support the no vote. So they're not sort of turning out in the street in super huge numbers, but they're still getting around the place. And some of them have gone off to grow vegetables and get their superannuation out and put it into gold and do all those other good things. So... Yeah, I think unfortunately they're like some sort of zombie in season, whatever we're up to now. They they continue on. Now that the referendum's over, what's what's happening with those people that are activated against the voice? Because the the sort of weird thing about this movement is that there are indigenous people involved, indigenous sovereign citizens who have their own ideas about what it means to be sovereign, and there's also a lot of people who really stretch the meaning of the word Indigenous, I guess you could say, in terms of how they think of themselves and their relationship with this country. But some of those people support treaty and some of them have obviously been reading a whole heap of anti-Semitic propaganda against treaty. What's happening with all of that? As far as I know, the, uh, the treaty situation has been resolved when a um, Indigenous man took his white pal to... Uluru and made a treaty in a sacred men's cave there and put their grubby fingerprints on some artwork on the cave and that's it, treaty done. Oh, well, there you go, breaking news, funny enough, that's right. Yep, breaking news, you heard it here. Yes, they were charged and they was completely outrageous what they did. Yeah, look, I think my main concern is that through the referendum process, the people that are very prolific on Telegram in particular at pumping out propaganda might be against the ABC, it might be against Jews, then it was against The Voice. That little propaganda effort really made inroads into the online cooker movement, freedom movement, and they're continuing on. And what their target is now is the the various state-based treaties that are going ahead. I think most of them didn't even know that places like Victoria have, have had a treaty process going for quite some time because they've been state-based, they haven't been paying any attention to it. But now they've noticed that places like South Australia and New South Wales are trying to follow Victoria's example and bring in state-based treaties. And uh, they seem to be turning their attention to those and try to get those uh, derailed, which I think is a is a big concern. So I don't want to play into the narrative that it was all Nazis that brought that that made the referendum fail and why there was a no vote, but they certainly pumped out a lot of propaganda and they got a lot of time, I think, for their efforts, and I think they're going to continue on. So as for the Aboriginal people who were sovereign citizens, 
who believe in that whole law of the sea, law of the land, and I'm a living person and all of that sort of stuff. Some of them have made their way onto almost mainstreamish television and media channels, popping up on radio and Sky News and various places. So I think they'll probably be dropped like hot potatoes now that Sky News and the Conservatives can move on to another issue. Kaz, what did you make of the targeting of individuals such as Lydia Thorpe during the course of the referendum campaign? Yeah, look, I think it's it's appalling. I mean, given the the misogyny within the far right and the you know, the crossover with neo Nazis and incels, it didn't surprise me that they focus on a very strong powerful, you know, woman with a very strong, powerful voice, Lydia Thorpe. I think it is appalling that it took the police a very long time to bring charges against those who made the first video targeting her and burning the Aboriginal flag. I think it's outrageous that it took a year and a half. So I am concerned that all politicians who are doing their job should feel safely able to do their job. And it really concerns me when it's a woman like Lydia Thorpe who says she's got to move out of her house because of threats and not feeling protected. I think it's a really big concern. And I think that the way that she's been targeted is has a really bad effect on any other women who might want to go into politics as well, or women who just want to speak up. I know myself that I get targeted by neo-Nazis in particular. And I think that women who were in the public eye probably really cop it a lot and probably get it a lot worse than I do as well. So I thought it was appalling. And I think that the the government reaction to Lydia Thorpe has not been great. When we had the Prime Minister suggesting that she needed mental health support rather than backing her much earlier in the piece, I think that was a very bad message, which which, you know, indicated to those that were targeting her that she was sort of fair game for targeting. So I think it's in any of those those women that have really copped it, whether it's Grace Tame or Brittany Higgins, those women really pay a big price for speaking up. And I think that's what's happened to Lydia Thorpe as well. Kaz, just finally, we've seen a bit of reporting on extremism lately. How do you think journalists, though, could improve their reporting and investigation of extremism? Well, number one, don't just replicate the banners that they're holding up and replicate their stickers and don't have their contact details in your photographs that you publish online or in your newspaper. That would be number one. Number two, think about amplification, like why you're reporting on this story and how you're reporting on it. It's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you, you want journalists to be able to say, hey, this is what's going on, we should be concerned about it. But on the other hand, we know that neo-Nazis love their scrapbooks full of mentions of, you know, when they're, they're in the newspaper on mentioned online or whatever it is. So I think with journalists, talk to people who know, don't just go rushing in with the scoop. Talk to someone like Andy and think about how best to to tell the story. I mean, I think over the years I've seen some journalists really develop and become very good at walking a very good line between reporting on what's happening but not amplifying it and making them look like heroes. There's multiple voices that could be asked about stuff as well. So 
I, th- I think it's difficult. Basically, the problem is that we do not have a extremist uh, beat. You know, we don't have journalists that that's, they're resourced and supported to report on these issues. So it's often journalists who may not have reported on stuff before or they're just, you know, told right up this story and they don't know the background or whatever it is. And it's it's a real problem with the way that, you know, reporting and journalism is structured, I think, in Australia. I mean, Andy, what do you think about that? What do you think journalists could do to, to report better? Well, I agree with what you said. I think. Oh, of course you agree. Oh, everyone should ask Andy. That's right. <laughs> well, I do occasionally get queries and I, I try to assist as best I'm. I guess the. I, because I have a perspective that I bring to the subject, which is that I want to produce materials that are most likely going to disrupt their organising efforts. I'm a slightly different position to most journalists writing on the subject. I mean, I agree with you that it would be useful to have one or more people in working in media who dedicated themselves to documenting and monitoring this sort of activity, but I think the prospects of that occurring are extremely low. I think the maybe the closest proposal that I thought might have been useful that was made in the past was a group like the MEAA producing a guide for journalists, which provides them with a, you know, not only, I guess, guidelines with regards to technical aspects of writing, but actually inform them about the far right in Australia in a way that was relatively easy to comprehend and to utilise. I think that's the kind of thing that has begun to develop in some publications over the past couple of years. And, you know, I think... Uh, the Nazi, Nazis Next Door series that was published by Nine Fairfax was good in the sense that um, it was thorough and it was also able to, I guess, name names. And I think that that's, I think what we're witnessing now with Nazis in Melbourne is a number of them have been publicly exposed as Nazi activists and some of them have been active for a number of years. I suppose for them there's little more to fear from being named you know, as the leader of this group or a member of that other group. And it's a period of experimentation to see what are the actual social costs associated with um, involvement in a Nazi group. And so I think, you know, to some extent, just noting the fact that someone went to court and was found guilty of this offence is useful in terms of building up a picture of the activities of Nazis in Melbourne. But I think that outside of the podcast that was mentioned earlier and the work Nick McKenzie and co have done at Nine Fairfax. I don't know if there have been too many detailed examinations and those that that have been published have largely been confined to academia. So I think there's probably, you know, a lot of information, a lot of knowledge about their activities available. I think what's the, the central problem is that unless, you know, the ABC or some other government institution decides that this requires dedicated reportage, it's very unlikely to come from commercial or other media. So, but then that's where I think others, such as yourself and, and various other people writing about the far right, can kind of, I guess, are filling the gap. And, and in that case, it's really a matter of ensuring that there's an audience for it and an informed audience. 
But I think that that can only build over time. But eventually that's, that's I mean, I view that as being, you know, publications as being part of, I guess, constructing a movement. So that's how I view it. But certainly I think it's, they're a good journalist. It's very often a question of resources. If someone's been assigned to write about something, you know, that's their job. They do it. They do the best that they can and move on to the next thing. So, yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Look, I think there's there's a couple of gaps. And one of the gaps is between, you know, there's a gap between what's happening now this weekend, this week, and where academic research is. That's There's a big gap there because just the nature of academic research is yeah. you're going to be years behind, right? Yeah. And you've got issues about how you can research something, what you can research. So there's a there's yeah. a problem there where people want to know, well, what happened last weekend? Who were these people? And we've seen it ourselves where various hapless academics have named the wrong group or they haven't had the, the information. So there's a there's a problem there. And there's also a gap with created because, you know, the current defamation laws in Australia have a very chilling effect on reporting on, proactively reporting on neo-Nazi activity. So often you see that the reporting is reactive. Something happened. Okay, let's explain what happened. Whether people can be named or not, that's a huge issue. So that makes people, you know, editors a bit nervous and a bit timid, I believe. I think the problem with, say, enforcing the swastika ban and Nazi symbols ban is we don't have a database. So if you're just a, you know, a police person and you see some symbol, you don't even necessarily know what it is. So unless it's a swastika, are you likely to even do anything about it? And this, you know, this is an issue. We actually kind of need another sort of crossover space, a coalition of probably academics and activists to create some kind of resource that journalists can use and that can be used to inform you know, what is this latest symbol? Because there's heaps of symbols they can choose from, as we know, and they'll just move on to one that, you know, that people might go, well, it's not really a swastika, so I'm not going to do anything about it. So I think there are some, there are definitely some gaps. I mean, one thing that I've been pretty keen on is trying to create a resource for, say, politicians, because we know that politicians have fallen for some of these sort of 4chan, you know, Kekistan-type memeing efforts because they just don't know. And one thing I put in a submission along with Dr Jordan McSwiney to one of the extremism inquiries was that the parliamentary library should start a database of far-right memes that are relevant so that politicians can go, hey, hang on, you know, what's this it's okay to be white thing or whatever it is and actually be able to be informed as to what it is. I imagine if any such unit were created in Parliament, it would be the subject of some uh, controversy. Yeah, well, you know, this is the thing. It's easy to troll politicians when particularly they themselves might not know that it's their own staffers might be the ones bringing this stuff in. So we've seen that in the past where, you know, the staffers on, on politicians' payrolls are the ones that are infiltrating in alt-right or far-right memes and ideas. And though, how do the politicians know? I mean, not everybody's obsessively watching Nazis like our good selves. So, you know, there needs to be some kind of, there's a lot of knowledge, I think, in Australia about the far right, about the history of it, not just neo-Nazis, but other forms of fascism, 
but it's actually sort of bringing that into some kind of resource or some kind of central place would be great. Well, Kaz, we'll have to leave it there. If people want to find you online, you are at x.com slash Tazzy Kaz. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to chat to you guys. And next time you want to hear about Steve Bannon, just give me another call. No worries. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you then. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday, 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.